pressure. All right, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'll just tell a story anyway. I know, I've known David a long time, um, like too long. Um, but when he called me like a month ago to speak at Sam, I'm telling it, dude, I'm sorry. So he called me like a month ago, and uh, I picked up, and he said, hey, dude, what you, what's up? And I said, oh, I'm at my grandma's funeral. I'm about to officiate. I'm about to go on stage. And he just got silent. And I went, dude, are you okay? Like, what's up? He's like, no, I'll call you back later. It's fine. I was like, no, dude, like, we're on the phone. Just what's up? And he's like, do you want to speak at Sank? I'm like, <laughs> so, yeah, dude, I'll come speak at Sank. Terrible timing. Um, but uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about my story, and um, then we're going to jump in this resolutions series, which I'm super excited about. Um, but in May of 2007, I met a girl named Elisa Tyler. That was a lot of hair ago, like a lot of hair. Um, but our paths began to cross, and right off the bat, it was super awkward. Because this was before social media was huge, where you could just stalk people and look at their pictures and be like, oh, we have mutual friends. They like Cabo. Like, you couldn't do any of that. So all of Elisa's friends and family were telling her about me, and they're like, you have to meet. You guys would be a great couple. It would be awesome. And all of my friends and her family, like her dad was saying, you got to meet my daughter. Like any dad that wants to pass off his daughter, is, that's bad news. I do not want to meet her. Um, and so it was just super awkward right off the bat. And when we finally met, we met at church, and I saw her, and she was playing drums, and I went, okay, she plays drums, that's cool, she's super beautiful, I'm sold. And then Elisa went back to her friends and family and said, what's all the hype about? That dude's super weird. Um, <laughs> but for some reason, the clouds opened up, God showed his favor upon me, because January of 2010, we got married. Um, and then a week later, we started our new positions as youth pastors at a small church in San Jose called South Hills Community Church. Um, yeah, there's a lot of muscle to go too. Now it's just, um, but those first few years of our marriage, like that honeymoon phase was awesome. We ate out a ton. We traveled, um, we stayed up late. Now we're in bed at like 9 PM. Um, it was awesome. We just got to do all of these crazy things. Um, and then about three years into our marriage, we felt like God was putting a desire in us as individuals and also just supernaturally in us as a couple where we felt like God wanted us to grow our families. So we got um, a couple dogs. Um, so the, 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 the brown and black dog is Toby. He is the best dog that has ever lived in the history of dogs, and that's Moo Moo. Um, she is the worst dog. So if anyone wants a dog, free um, to get home. Uh, so we got our dogs, and it was awesome. And then my wife and I said, okay, we feel like, we, God, you were talking about kids. Okay, cool, we got the point. Um, so my wife and I prepared for children in very different ways. So my wife began to meet with people, friends who had kids already, and she began to ask them questions about, like, how do you raise them to be respectable adults? How do you make sure they're not, they're not nuts? Um, and she would read every single book she could get her hands on, like the best car seat, like my wife surrounded herself with resources and with people and gained information that way. I, being the realist that I am, just looked at bills like a million times a day, and I'm like, how much is this thing going to cost? And then I called friends who had kids, and the answer was like $100 million. Like, kids are super expensive. Um, but no matter how prepared we were, in March of 2013, my wife ran into our bedroom, and she told me she was pregnant. It was awesome. Like, I don't know if any of you guys have kids, but I hope you experience that joy. We laughed, we cried, we celebrated, we made 
every emotion in like 10 seconds of like, oh, this is the best. How are we going to afford it? This is awesome. We're going to die. Like it was crazy. (laughs) And we made this list of like who we were going to call in what order. We're like, how do we tell our moms at the same time so one doesn't get mad that she found out soon? And then that list was thrown out the door. I remember taking out our garbage and meeting our neighbor who I've never met before. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? We're pregnant. He's like, you are super weird. Um, (laughs) Like, we just told anyone and everyone. It was this new level of emotion and joy that you just can't explain unless you are a parent. It was awesome. And then in May of 2013, my wife began to experience some strange bleeding. Um, and as first-time parents, we called the doctor, and we just said, this is what's going on. And our doctor said, hey, this is normal. People can experience bleeding like this if they're pregnant, but why don't you just, just come in and let's just do some tests to be sure and to just kind of see what's going on. So we went into the doctor to check everything out, and we learned a new word that day. We learned that my wife was in the process of something called a miscarriage, which meant that the baby that was inside of my wife was going to die. And in that moment when we heard that from our doctors, we had nothing. Like, we were just in shock, and we just had to sit there and listen that there was nothing we could do to change our circumstances. And then as we kind of came out of that moment, the doctor began to use some numbers that actually brought some comfort to us, which is that one in four pregnancies actually end in miscarriage. One in four. And those numbers actually comforted us. They didn't comfort us because other people had gone through the same difficulty that we were going through. We were comforted knowing that there's a community of people out there going through what we are going through, and we can surround ourselves with them, and they can help us process this and make it through this. And so because of community and people coming out of the woodworks and sharing their story, we survived that. And in April of 2015, our sorrow and our sadness of our miscarriage turned to joy because my wife once again ran into our bedroom and said, I'm pregnant. Same thing, like, this is the best. We're going to die. This is the, like, the same emotions. And then while on vacation at Disney World in Florida, my wife experienced the same bleeding. And so for our entire vacation, we just stayed in the hotel room while she endured a miscarriage. And all we could do was sit there and cry. And as a husband, all I could do was sit there and pat her on the back and go, it's going to be okay. Like We're going to make it through this. It was the worst vacation we've ever been on. Our first miscarriage, we, we justified as normal. Like it happens to one in four people. This, is, this has happened to a lot of our friends, but a second miscarriage actually felt like an attack. It was hard to sit there and not be angry, and my anger wasn't directed at my wife or our doctor. It was directed at God. I'm like, God, do you see what we're feeling? Do you see our sadness? Do you see our anger? Why have you allowed this? God, do you not care? But somehow we made it through our, our second miscarriage because of our awesome church at South Hills Community Church. People who, like Kit and Wanda, my friends here in the front row, they surrounded themselves around us and said, you're going to make it through this. And they loved us. Finally, in June of 2015, my wife once again became pregnant. And when my wife shared this news with me, the last couple times it was celebration and sometimes fear. And when my wife shared it with, for the third time that she was pregnant, both of us, were hesitant. We were afraid, we were numb, because we'd been here before. Like, we'd celebrated before, and it never ended well. So when we found out we were pregnant, we just sat there, and we were terrified. 
So we both sat on our bed in our bedroom and we put our hands on my wife's belly and we dedicated our third child to God and we just said, God, please, 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 can we just carry this child to full term? Please, like, and we just were extremely raw and being completely raw with you guys tonight, our prayer was, God, we don't think us as individuals can make it through this and we're pretty confident that our marriage won't be intact if we have another miscarriage. So we prayed and we dedicated this child. In August of 2015, our third child died. In this moment, as we lost our third child in the span of two years, when I laid awake at night, the emotions that went through my head was sadness and anger. But the ideas and the thoughts that consumed my head more than anything else was one, is this really happening? I struggled to accept. There's no way that this is happening to me and to us. And the second thing is I wanted to know, like, God, why did you do this? I was angry at God. As a pastor, I was angry at God, and I was ready to completely throw my faith away because I couldn't process how I felt and why this was happening. Tonight, we're kicking off this series called Resolutions, and the hope of this series is, has already been mentioned. The goal and the hope is that we would become healthy individuals, not just spiritually, but mentally, physically, and tonight we'll talk about emotionally. Tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to be healthy, emotional, or emotionally healthy individuals, individuals, and some of the barricades, some of the roadblocks that we allow to keep us from actually living as emotionally healthy people. So right out the gates, just some spoilers. These are the two things that we're going to talk about tonight. The first barricade that I really believe keeps us from being emotionally healthy is this. We allow our circumstances to determine our emotional health. And so as a result, sometimes we just refuse to accept what's actually happening in our lives. And we dismiss all the emotions that we're supposed to process through those things. And the second barricade that I think uh, keeps us from being emotionally healthy individuals is that we believe that our circumstances are a reflection of God's emotions towards us. And we're going to break that down a little bit more throughout the night. Um, but in order to help us understand this a little bit, we're going to sit in Matthew 11 for most of our time tonight. We're just going to dissect all of those verses. Um, but in Matthew 11, we find John the Baptist in prison. So why was he arrested? I think this is super weird, and I'm going to get all tongue-tied because it's so messed up and so special. Uh, so King Herod's two sons. One of Herod's sons meets his brother's wife, falls in love with her, thinks it's, she's just the best thing in the entire world, so he divorces his wife so he can marry his brother's wife. And that same brother's wife falls in love with the brother, so she divorces her husband so that they can be together. Like, this is all kinds of special. It needs to be on Dr. Phil and one day on Judge Judy. Like, it's super weird. Um, but John the Baptist sees all this, and he, he sees all of the crazy actions that this family has taken, and he calls them out. He says, this is wrong. It's against Jewish law to take such, such action. You guys need to stop it. And so John, taking the action of calling out this family for what they're doing, obviously angers them. So out of their anger, they throw John in prison with all signs pointing to him being killed while he's in there. So in Matthew 11, 1 through 3, while John is in prison, he sends this message, which is super confusing at first glance, to Jesus through a messenger. And here's what it says. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. 
When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Okay, so this verse is super confusing, right? Because what it seems like John is asking Jesus is to confirm whether he is the Messiah or not. And that's not a question that John actually needs an answer to because he already knows with full certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, In fact, it says in Matthew 3, John the Baptist was there when Jesus was baptized and the clouds opened up and a loud voice came saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. While John was still in his mother's womb, it says that he recognized Jesus in Luke 1, 39 through 41. A few days later, later, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth, and at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So this question that John the Baptist is asking Jesus through this messenger is super confusing. He doesn't need to know if Jesus is the Messiah or not. He already knows that answer. So What's the point of this? History lesson. Here we go. According to the rabbis of biblical times who had combed scripture for generation after generation after generation, there were seven things that the Messiah was definitely going to do. So these seven things were agreed upon by rabbis who then taught their students. And when those students became rabbis, they taught their students. And it was a way for them to kind of know whether this was the Messiah or not. And it wasn't some dude who was just acting crazy, being like, I'm the Messiah. Could you have any spare money? Like, they wanted to make sure that they knew this was the dude. So there were seven signs that would confirm that he was the Messiah. Um, And these are the seven signs. It says, They would make the blind see, the Messiah would make the lame walk, he would make the deaf hear, he would raise the dead, he would help the the poor, he would heal the sick, and he would free the captives. So when we know that, like in our world in 2020, we don't know this, but every student, every rabbi would know these seven things about the Messiah. So when we know those things, John's message becomes a little bit more clear. So John's message... He was asking in code, he was saying, Jesus, do you see my circumstances? Do you see the darkest of place that I'm at? Do you see how I feel? Do you hear the whispers that I'm going to be killed because of what I said? And what I said was actually a good thing, but do you see what's going on? He wanted to know, Jesus, are you going to be the Messiah? And that last one, are you going to free me from my captivity? He wanted to know if Jesus was going to be true to who he really was, which was to save him from his darkest of place. And then in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, listen to Jesus' response. Jesus replied, go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In Jesus' response, what John was hoping he would say is, John, I see what you're going through, and I'm going to help fix it. I'm going to come, and I'm going to save you. And he begins to list off all of these prophetic signs about the true Messiah going through them, and everyone listening, the messenger would have caught him. Okay, um, heal the sick, check. Um, 
But did you notice in Jesus' response, he mentioned six and he leaves one out? Which one does he leave out? Free the captives. Jesus in code responds to John by saying, John, I am who you I am who I say I am. I am the Messiah. I've heard about your circumstances. I've heard about how terrible things are for you right now. But John, you need to know something. I'm not going to save you. You're going to die. When John received that message, what was he thinking? What was he feeling in that moment where he realized he was alone? When he realized in his darkest of places, his final moments, perhaps, what was going on in his head? Maybe he was feeling like my wife, Elisa, and I was, we, how we felt after our third miscarriage. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he was sad. Maybe he was confused. Maybe he blamed Jesus. Maybe he had questions like, Jesus, do you not care? Jesus, do you not see what I'm going through? Have I done something to upset you? In that moment, who knows how John felt? We don't. But what we do know is shortly after that message was delivered to John, he was beheaded. One of, John's, one of Jesus' biggest advocates was beheaded. You see, barricade number one, the thing that keeps us from being emotionally healthy is that we allow our circumstances to determine our emotional health. To be emotionally healthy people, we have to accept that the world that we live in is broken. And we are going to experience that brokenness firsthand. And I know that seems really obvious, but sometimes we don't allow that to sink in and to find roots into our lives. Bad and unfortunate things are going to happen to us and around us. Miscarriages happen. Relationships end. Friendships leave. Jobs don't come through. Families separate. Bad things happen in this world. The truth is that sometimes those things win. Cancer wins. Spouses don't come back. Unemployment lasts longer than expected. And sometimes there's nothing we can do to change those circumstances. Emotional unhealth happens when we refuse to accept that this world is a broken place. When we refuse to accept that brokenness and tragedy are going to happen in our lives, when we refuse to accept that, we will always experience emotional chaos because it catches us off guard. Surely this isn't going to happen to me and we're never prepared for it. But if we live in a way where we go, this world is broken because of sin and we're going to experience that brokenness, we can be, pre we can be prepared knowing that bad things are going to happen in our lives. And sometimes we just like to live in our heads and go, man, that's not going to happen to me. Surely a miscarriage wouldn't happen to me. Surely my spouse wouldn't leave me. Surely this friendship wouldn't end because we're so close. We have to accept the reality that there is darkness in this world and it's going to have an impact on, on your story and my story and our story. Dallas Willard in, in his book, The Allure of Greatness, Gentleness, says, how then do we reply to the objections that the creator and sustainer of a world in which there is war, deformity, suicide, depression, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and cancer cannot be a good God, able to assist those who trust him and those who must depend upon his care? First, we agree that many things that happen when considered by themselves are not good. They are indeed tragic. We must never deny this. It is important not to give a cavalier or simple answer to those who have suffered. You have to accept the full reality of suffering and not try to explain it away. 
if we are to become emotionally healthy individuals, we have to learn to accept the world that we live in. But not just accept, we have to learn to sit in the tragedy of this world and we have to learn how to process it. We have to learn how to grieve. We have to learn not to brush things under the rug. We have to learn how to celebrate, but also to cry and to mourn and to endure loss. Because as Christ's followers, we're called in this lifetime not to just grow and to become emotionally healthy individuals. We're called as Christ's followers to help others do the same. So if you're not at a place where you can endure the darkness of this world and grow from it, how are we as Christ's followers going to go out and help others do the same? By definition, emotional health is to be aware of one's reality while being able to control your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors towards it, both positive and negative. Emotionally healthy people still feel anger and sadness and doubt and frustration and joy and happiness and celebration. They feel all emotions. They've just learned to process them as life happens around them. To be emotionally healthy doesn't mean to journey through this life being happy 24-7. That's just nuts. Emotionally healthy means you can go through this life and no matter what happens, no matter what is thrown your way, you can process it and grow from it and help others do the same. So coming back to the story of John, in hearing this report from Jesus, John would look around and he'd find himself in prison, soon to be killed, all alone, knowing that he would not be saved. He'd have to quickly respond to what was going on around him, what was about to happen to him. But even in John's final days, Jesus' final message to John, he acknowledged that he heard and saw what was happening. He reminded him of all that uh, he had done. And that was Jesus' way of comforting John. Did you catch that? He goes through the six, the six prophecies. Jesus could have just said, John, I'm not going to save you. But he goes through the six prophecies with the hope of reminding John who he is and what he has done and what he will do. John, don't forget, I've made the dead alive. I've healed the sick. I've made the lame walk. I've made the blind see. Remember what I have done, John. I am faithful to you. I see you. I see what you're going through. I will always be with you. Jesus here is encouraging John, but he's encouraging us today in this room with the same thing. When our world seems chaotic, when tragedy happens to us or to those that we love, we just need to remember that Jesus is with us. And this was the loving reminder that Jesus gave to John in his final days. You see, that barricade number two, when our circumstances are less than ideal, when we experience the brokenness of this world firsthand and we pass that first barricade and we learn to accept that circumstance and we learn to sit in it and we learn to grow from it, the temptation is to conclude that that is a reflection of how God feels about you. So coming back to our story of our miscarriages, when we experienced loss and when our children died, we thought, God, we, what did we do to you? You must obviously hate us for this to happen, right? Don't we all do that? Like if we have a great day at work, we're like, God, thank you for shining your light upon us. You obviously love us. I did something great. If something bad happens, you lose a job, a relationship ends. God, why would you allow this? What did I do to you? We connect our circumstances with God's feelings towards us, but they're unrelated. We have to kind of remove those things. 
Because how God feels about us are not determined by our circumstances and what we're going through. That's the temptation to assume that God's emotions are a reflection of our circumstances. But Jesus says, don't give in. What he encourages John with and what he encourages us with is to accept the world that you live in, learn to sit, process, and respond, but then remember Jesus. And what he means by that, remember that he is close to the brokenhearted. Remember that he is all-knowing. Remember that he is everywhere. Remember that he is faithful. Remember that he is loving. Dallas Willard, just a couple paragraphs down in that same book, says, the Christian faith is committed to a picture of God and the world that makes every event ultimately redeemable and therefore permissible by a personal God who is both willing and able to nurture and to being a creation that cannot be improved upon. It does not hold that every event is good in itself. Bad things, even horrendous moral evils do come to pass. But in the vision of Jesus Christ communicated to his people, all human beings, and yes, even the sparrows and the lilies are effectively cared for. Every person is invited to say in faith and obedience, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If all the individual has is this life, then clearly evil, pain, and frustration are not redeemed. But seen in the context of God's world as a whole, seen as, the, as but a part of a life that never ends and endlessly becomes more and more glorious, there is no evil individuals may suffer that can prevent them from finding life to be good and God to be good. The temptation is to think that our circumstances, our thoughts, and even our feelings are a reflection of how God feels about you. But we have to throw that out in the garbage because Jesus says, no, 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 no. No matter what happens to you, no matter how many miscarriages you experience, no matter how many jobs you lose, no matter, no matter how many marriages you have, no matter whatever, it doesn't change the fact that I love you. God's emotions towards you never change. And we need to hear that tonight. No matter how your story has taken shape, no matter what you're going through right now, it does not change how God feels towards you. And if we ever struggle to remember those things, we ever struggle to remember how Jesus feels about you, we ever struggle to remember how God thinks about you, we just have to look to the cross. Because it's through the cross that Jesus walked into death to rescue us because of his faithfulness, commitment, loyalty, and love for you. Through the cross, Jesus endured more terrible, terrible circumstances than any of us will ever experience in this entire world out of love for you. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he go to the cross willingly? Because he loves you. And nothing will ever change that. His emotions towards you never change. When we remember Jesus, when we truly remember Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you, we can be emotionally healthy because we have confidence. We have peace knowing that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in our life, we have a God who is in a relationship with us and he is with you as you endure it. What we need to understand as we kind of wrap up our time together 
is this resolution of becoming emotionally healthy individuals, it can't be a 2020 thing. This is what you're committing to as Christ followers. This is a lifelong process. These are things that I struggled with as a pastor when we lost our children. These are things that I still struggle with. But if we are to be emotionally healthy individuals, we have to accept the world that we live in. We have to learn to sit in tragedy when it happens, and we have to learn to grow from it so that we can go and help others do the same. We have to stop living in our heads and say, there's no way this is happening to me. There's no way this is happening to me. And we have to just realize that sometimes bad things happen. But we can still respond in a healthy way and be at peace no matter what life throws our way. We have to accept that this world is full of joy and sadness, and you're going to experience both and everything in between. But most importantly, I just want to end with this. To be emotionally healthy, you have to learn to be focused on Jesus. If you can remain focused on him and what he's done for you and how he feels about you, no matter what season you find yourself in, whether it be one of sadness or one of celebration, you can say no matter what happens to me, no matter what life throws at me, life is good and God is good. And in partnership with him, you can make it through it. And then you can help others do the same. Let me pray for us. God, we love you so much. God, it's really hard to be emotionally healthy in a world that we live in when there is so much darkness and there is so much tragedy. Lord, it's really easy to just dismiss it and just go about our day. Lord, help us to learn to process whatever life throws at us. Lord, help us to grow from it, not just for our own benefit, but just, Lord, so that we can help each other in this room. We can help our friends. We can help our family. We can sit with them in tragedy so that they too can process emotionally what they need to process. God, give us the boldness to maybe address some of the things that we've brushed underneath the rug that we've refused to accept. And Lord, let us get to the place where we can say no matter what happens, God, you are good and you are with me and we've got this together. And help us to remember you, Jesus, knowing that as we focus on you, we can find supernatural peace and joy even amidst suffering. God, we love you so, so much in your name.